Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, a conversation about a sex cult, Kushner companies under the microscope for falsifying paperwork, and a lawsuit against NYCHA. Hi, welcome to the show. I'm Ross Tuttle, filling in for Ashley Ford, who has finally recovered from the flu, but now she's got the travel bug. I mean, she's returning from L.A., where she was chilling, enjoying the sun, and talking to authors at the L.A. Times Festival of Books. Hope she's having fun, but we expect her back tomorrow. Hear that, Ashley? Tomorrow. We'll see you then. I'm excited. Okay, in the meantime, you may have heard late last week a bit of unexpected news. Smallville actress Allison Mack was arrested in Brooklyn on charges of sex trafficking in connection to a so-called cult which recruited women to what was ostensibly a mentoring program only for them to be used as sex slaves by the leader, Keith Rainier, who was known by the name Vanguard. That's right, this is not a science fiction movie. Another allegation is that the women were branded with Rainier and Mack's initials, as in branded like cattle, although I think they used a laser. And when we first reported on Rainier's arrest last month, we only knew to refer to the organization by its initials, N-X-I-V-M, but we now know it's pronounced Nexium. And thanks to a whistleblower, a former publicist for the group, we also know the group is now headquartered in Brooklyn. Uh-oh. We have that whistleblower on the phone to help us understand what the heck is going on. Frank Parlato Jr., thanks for joining us. <coughs> Thank you for having me. So, so, Frank, may I call you Frank? Of course. So this is a, I don't want to trivialize it, but this is a crazy story. I mean, we're hearing things like sex slave cult, slave master, people being branded and brainwashed. It's like Jim Jones back from the dead. Can you tell me about Nexium and where it kind of, it's in, in brief. I mean, we don't have a lot of time, but just tell me briefly about Nexium and has it always been a cult? Well, it began 20 years ago, and I would say yes, it's always been a cult that gradually uh, evolved into something that was ever increasingly coercive, resulting ultimately with Allison Mack and others being involved in this uh, sex slavery that resulted in federal charges being leveled against Ranieri and Mack. Okay. And what was your involvement with Nexium? How did you get mixed up with them? Well, they're funded by the Seagram heiresses, Claire and Sarah Brothman, who are quite wealthy. And so they've always been a rich cult. Mm. And I was hired back in 2007 to be their publicist. Hmm. They were looking to get away from being called a cult by such um, media outlets as the Albany Times Union, the New York Post, Forbes magazine. Of course, at that time, none of their darker, deeper secrets were entirely known. It was just very strange that the Brothman sisters and other celebrities were involved in this cult and giving them all their money. Hmm. And so, I mean, this may sound like a silly question, but what qualifies them as being a cult? It's always been a question that was debated. You know, what's a cult? What's a religion? What's a strange belief? Um, what I thought ultimately made them a cult was that their leader, Keith Raniere, was able to persuade hundreds, if not more than a thousand women, to do things that were inimical to their best interest. Hmm hurt themselves to take 500 calorie to 800 calorie diets and make that their their lifestyle to sleep only a couple hours a night and to get ultimately branded with Ranieri and Max initials on their pubic area. Wow, wow. And so when did you decide to speak out? Well, I began speaking out when I found out that Ranieri had stolen more than $100 million from Brothman. Hmm. 
And at that time, no one was interested. I went to the Buffalo FBI. I tried to persuade them that we have some real criminals here, but they laughed and thought that um, no one could be a victim like that and that the Boffins were certainly too celebrated a name. I mean, we are talking about the women whose father was the president of the World Jewish Congress. Hmm. Uh, Ultimately, in 2017, I uncovered the branding part of it. I was told about this, and I reported it in my um, capacity as a journalist, and I broke the story. Hmm. And uh, shortly thereafter, other media followed, Mm -hmm. and it became a worldwide story once uh, the FBI in New York City Mm-hmm. took up the case and ultimately arrested Ranieri and then Ellison Mack. Uh-huh. And so, I mean, these, these allegations are pretty explosive. I mean, so much of the evidence is coming from you and from the FBI's investigation? Or were you the source of most of, of the evidence in this case? Or what's going to pr- prove to be the evidence in the, in the trials going forward? Well, I was the first source, and you can say the primary source. Mm-hmm. But when I got my source from escaped slaves. I got my information from women who had escaped from Ranieri and Mack and Brofman. Wow. Two have been arrested. Brofman is still at large. Mm-hmm. And are they? Are the feds looking for her? I don't. I believe they're going to be ultimately indicting her. They have to be very careful about her because she has a lot of money. Right. Well, and she can fight back. Uh huh. And and you say that, and I think one of your articles, you talk about um, that. You know, they've moved to Brooklyn, and now they're ready for war. What do you mean by that? Well, I don't mean like there will be a jailbreak or anything, but we now have a group of slaves, slave women, who are under the command now of the Seagram heiress. Claire Brockman with, you know, nearly unlimited funds and a ruthless disposition. Mm-hmm. So now we have to, their main uh, goal is their war to get Ranieri free, which could mean witness intimidation. It could mean a potential suicide pact. Mm-hmm. It could mean any kind of orders that will further endanger the lives of the existing slaves. Mm-hmm. It could mean anything, provided they rescue their leader, Ranieri, who they call Vanguard. Wow. I mean, you have to forgive me, but a lot of this just sounds so far-fetched. And, you know, people are going to hear this story, read about this story, and consider the source, think about an individual who was part of this cult, is now coming out and speaking out against it. What would you say to people who question your credibility or just the, the, the sanity of this whole narrative? Well, I was never a member of the cult. I was an employee. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, I was deceived, and and I didn't believe it at first myself. When I began writing about this, people didn't believe it. Ultimately, when the New York Times and the New York Post and other publications vetted my stories and wrote about it, still people didn't believe it. Hmm. Ultimately, when the FBI arrested these people and charged them with the exact crimes that I detailed, some people believed Wow. Well, well, we're going to have to cut it off there because we're out of time, but hopefully we can have you back on the show, or if you're ever uh, visiting Brooklyn, maybe we can have you on in person, but we'll, we'll stay abreast of the developments with Nexium. Uh, Frank Parlato, we appreciate you joining us. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Coming up, we'll talk about Jared Kushner and inaccurate paperwork. No, not for his security clearance, but for permits his family's real estate company filed to renovate properties in the city. Those applications are now under scrutiny by the Brooklyn U.S. Attorney's Office. Plus, a lawsuit against NYCHA should come as no surprise. We'll talk to the group behind it, who they represent, and what they're hoping to achieve. Stay tuned.
News broke last week that the Brooklyn U.S. Attorney's Office subpoenaed Kushner Companies, the real estate group once run by the president's son-in-law, Jared Kushner. It's part of an investigation about the firm having falsified permit applications, misstating the number of rent-controlled units and buildings they sought to renovate. In those applications, the company reported there were zero rent-controlled units, when in fact there were approximately 300. To tell us why this is significant and what is being done about it is City Council Member Richie Torres from the Bronx. You. He, he initiated an investigation into Kushner Company's handling of the paperwork. Welcome back to 112BK. And Aaron Carr, Executive Director of Housing Rights Initiative, which discovered the discrepancies. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Aaron, what led you to review the documents in the first place? So, Housing Rights Initiative, uh, in partnership with Councilmember Torres's office, uh, uncovered that Kushner Companies falsified over 80 work permit applications with the government in an attempt to remove apartments from rent stabilization. And our organization has been receiving complaints from uh, Kushner Company's tenants for quite a while now. Uh, as we all know, we're in the midst of an affordable housing crisis. Mm -hmm. Rent stabilization is designed to set limits on how much landlords can charge in rent. However, in an attempt to circumvent those laws uh, and uh, remove a lot of these apartments from rent stabilization, Kushner Companies appears to have deliberately used invasive uh, and illegal construction practices to push tenants out of their apartments. Mm -hmm. And to hide what it was doing from the government, it was falsifying these permit applications uh, stating that none of the units in these buildings were rent-stabilized when hundreds of the units were rent-stabilized. So over time, a lot of these units are being removed from rent-stabilization. Uh, this does not appear to be an accident. This appears to be a window into a predatory business model. Well, I want to get back to that in a second, um, how, whether it's an accident or not an accident and whether it was intentional. Um, but there are safeguards in place, right, when you talk about um, affordable units or rent-stabilized units that are in a building that is being renovated, right? Can you, um, Council Member Torres, can you tell us about those safeguards? Well, there are safeguards in place, but, but a law is only as good as its enforcement. Right. And I think the scandal here is not only deception on the part of Kushner companies, the scandal here is dysfunction on the part of city government. Mm. is that most of the information that we came to obtain is publicly available. Mm -hmm. right? You have the property tax records from the Department right. of Finance. You have the building permits from the Department of Buildings. And we came to discover that the right hand did not know what the left hand was doing, mm -hmm. that Kushner companies would tell DHCR and the Department of Finance that it had rent-regulated units in its buildings and then would tell the Department of Buildings that it had no rent-regulated units in those very same buildings. Hmm. And there was no collaboration, no information sharing hmm. between those two arms of city agencies. Hmm. And so he was allowed to mislead the government with impunity, uh -huh. and it went largely unnoticed. And why, why is he doing that? I mean, what advantage do they gain if they're not accurately reporting the number of rent-stabilized units? There's less enforcement, or there, sorry, there's less um, uh, oversight into the building practices? That's it. Yeah, it's an oversight um, issue. Uh, and that's why this question exists, because tenant harassment runs rampant in New York City. There's a huge money motive to remove apartments from rent stabilization. And uh, they bought three Queens buildings in 2015 for about $40 million. And then they sold it two years later after getting most of these units out of the rent stabilization rolls for a $20 million gross profit, $60 million. So this is a lucrative business model. And when you're checking the no box on the rent stabilization question, uh, it makes it easier to avoid the enforcement system. 
And when you talk about that no box, we have um, a, a sample of one of these documents that was filed, and it seems, you know, you look down, it's on the last page where it asks you um, the, the site of the building to be altered or demolished or the site of new building to be constructed contains occupied housing accommodations subject to the rent control or rent stabilization under Chapter 3 and 4 of Title 26 of the New York City Administrative Code. Uh, and there's a column either for yes or no, and this is, I guess, a sample of one that they, they submitted, and it's clearly marked X. Um, what was their explanation for how this, how this happened? They say that it was a third party. Um, but the thing is, that PW1 form doesn't say third part, that section doesn't say third party uh, application. It says owner's statement, owner's application. So it is on the landlord who's paying these agencies, uh, sorry, paying these uh, third parties to submit these forms. It's on them to get it right, because mm -hmm. that's where these third parties are getting their information from. It's from the real estate owner itself. And unfortunately, our enforcement system is not viewing this as a business model. They're not looking into the actual portfolio where these falsifications are occurring. They view it as an isolated event. It's not isolated, it's systematic. You know, Kushner Company said that it was a typographical error. Mm. If there was only one falsified permit, right. then you could easily explain it away as a typographical error. Right. But when you have more than 80 falsified permits across 34 properties in the span of four years, what you have is a pattern and practice of lying to the city of New York, and there should be consequences. Well, I want to talk about those consequences in a second. What time frame are we talking about here? And was this, did this align when, when Jared Kushner was actually CEO of Kushner Companies? Yes, uh, it, it's been happening, it was a four-year period. Mm -hmm. So for the past four years, across about 34 buildings, mm -hmm. they've been filing these false permit uh, applications. Mm -hmm. um, so. Uh, you know, if, it, if this was just happened on uh, one month and it was just a, a few of them, fine. Mm -hmm. But four years, 80 falsified permit applications across 34 buildings, totally systemic. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to, you know, make light here, but a lot has been said of Jared Kushner's ability to fill out questionnaires. We know yeah. uh, that he had some difficulty doing it on his security clearance form. We know that he um, misassigned his gender and his voter registration. Uh, maybe there was one other instance where he got something wrong. I think you were saying there was another another time where he, he filled out something or his company filled out something inaccurately. Um, that gives you a, a sort of a window into this kind of practice. Yeah, it definitely seems to be a pattern of practice. And our organization, Housing Rights Initiative, even before the whole building permit issue came to light, we orchestrated two class action lawsuits in two Brooklyn buildings mm -hmm. that he owns, where he, uh, it appears Kushner companies illegally removed dozens of units from these buildings. Uh, so this pattern of practice just keeps manifesting itself yeah. across time and uh, over time and across buildings. Mm -hmm. And Councilmember Torres, you, you're talking about accountability. Um, what is your investigation seeking to do? Well, look, I think our joint investigation uh, will culminate, A, in legislative recommendations. So what solutions can we put forward mm -hmm. to foster greater communication and coordination across city government, particularly between the Department of Finance and the Department of Buildings? But, you know, there is a possibility that if we find evidence of criminal behavior, we would make a referral for criminal prosecution, either through the attorney general or the district attorney. Mm -hmm. But I want to be careful not to prejudge the outcome of the investigation. And it's worth noting that we're not focusing narrowly on Kushner companies. We're investigating the prevalence mm -hmm. of falsified building permits in the real estate industry writ large. Right, right. I, that is a question I was going to ask you because I, I wonder, is this and are Kushner's properties getting increased scrutiny because of who he is. You know, we talk, you know, Michael Cohen is being, you know, his office is being, um, you know, uh, entered by the FBI looking for 
you know, misdeeds and, and papers and things like that, and they claim, well, it's just because he's the president's lawyer or fixer. Ye yes and no. I mean, he is a, it's certainly the case that Kushner Companies is a poster child for a much more pervasive problem, but we have reason to suspect that he's a particularly egregious actor. Mm. And, you know, at a time when there's a crisis of confidence in government mm. and cynicism about government, uh, it's important to send the message that no one is above the law. Not even the son-in-law of the president of the United States. Sure. And, sorry. Go yeah, ahead. And I'll, I'll say this. I mean, at the end of the day, um, we can't just focus on the symptom, right? Because one then we'll never find a cure. Uh, Kushner is not the problem, so to speak, uh, and neither are the landlords or real estate. At the end of the day, this is an enforcement problem, this is a legislative problem, and this is a campaign finance problem. Real estate is always going to do what's in their own interest, but it's our government's responsibility to do what's in the public's best interest, and this is what we are paying them to do. Um, our tax dollars are going to this. They're supposed to be enforcing our rights, and it's on the city, the city agencies, to systematically look into this problem and resolve it across the board. And so I understand what you're saying about that and about oversight um, issues. This, though, you know, oftentimes we're concerned about loopholes and how people can exploit loopholes and governments. It's government's job to kind of tighten those loopholes and make sure you can't jump through them. This isn't a loophole, though, that they're exploiting there, here. This is, there's no room for ambiguity. It's a yes or no question. <laughs> Either you have unregulated units mm -hmm. or you don't. Either your units are occupied or you don't. Mm -hmm. And construction safety is most critical mm -hmm. when the units are both occupied and rent regulated. Mm -hmm. I mean, the problem with falsifying building permits is not a failure of paperwork, mm -hmm. right? You are playing Russian roulette with the affordability of rent-regulated units, which is increasingly precarious, mm -hmm. and with the safety of residents who are living in these units during construction. Mm -hmm. I call it the weaponization of construction. It's mm -hmm. the use of construction as a weapon for harassing tenants out of their apartment and deregulating units out of existence. Right, so this is a practice that maybe a lot of New Yorkers are probably yeah. aware of, maybe a lot aren't, but you, can you talk about that, Aaron, and some of the calls you were getting, some of the complaints you were getting from some people that you work with about their concerns, what was happening, what were they saying to you about how they were being harassed? Uh, they were going through in a construction apocalypse. Um, like, you have to actually be there to, to really understand the magnitude of what they've been doing. Uh, but we're talking about uh, not just a lack of heat, but just rampant and consistent construction practices that causes dust, that causes rats, uh, you know, to infest the buildings, uh, serious stuff that's been driving out tenants. And I want to be very clear about this. Structure accident is not just this mild or annoying condition. It is a form of psychological and physical torture. Why in the midst of an affordable housing crisis would so many of Kushner's tenants just been willing to give up their affordability and leave their buildings? You have to create a situation that is so tolerable and so uh, impossible to deal with that you're willing to just give up the most valuable thing that you can have. And that was happening. A lot of these, all of these tenants were fleeing. Yes. And the complaint data reflects that. If you look at, this is a matter of public record, hundreds of complaints about the same thing over and over and over again. So that's what we mean by looking into patterns. I should say we, we called Kushner Companies today just to get a comment um, from them about this subject, and they said we have no further comment and reflecting what they've said in the press, again, that this was a third-party uh, mistake and um, it's, it's an ongoing investigation. Because the owner is required to sign the PW1 form. Mm -hmm. but you're signing a legal instrument mm -hmm. under the penalty of perjury. Right. So when you falsify the instrument, you cannot shift responsibility to someone else, you have to take accountability. And the third party is getting this information yeah. from the landlord who's paying them.
Well, we'll have to leave it there. Um, it would be great to have you guys back as this case uh, progresses through the system. Councilmember Torres and Aaron Carr from Housing Rights Initiative, thank you so much. So speaking of falsified paperwork, here's a quiz. Which city agency has been discovered to have filed some of their own? I'll give you a hint. The governor has placed the agency under a state of emergency, and its chairperson resigned earlier this month. That's right, you guessed it, it's NYCHA, or the beleaguered New York City Housing Authority, which failed to provide adequate heat for residents in a number of its buildings this past winter, failed to inspect units for lead, but said it did, and has allowed mold to proliferate. So it should come as no surprise that the agency is now being sued by more than one party. Legal Aid Society is representing one group of plaintiffs, and we have with us today Judith Goldner, who runs Legal Aid Society's Law Reform Unit, to tell us about their case. Judith, thank you for joining us. Sure. So can you tell us about the lawsuit and how it came about? Well, so obviously we all remember January, and it was very, very, very cold. And we started getting calls from our clients telling us not only was it really, really cold, but they had no heat and they had no hot water. Mm. Um, And... We were trying to figure out what was going on. You know, then the city council, I think you probably covered it, had a hearing, Mm -hmm. and they got NYCHA to basically admit that for many, many days, weeks, many of their tenants, like almost 80% of their tenants, did not have heat and hot water for some of the heating season. And that was really outrageous to us. I mean, there is no more basic... um, goal of a landlord. Like, nothing could be more important to the landlord-tenant relationship than providing those kind of basic services, right? Heat Heat, in the winter. Heat in the winter, hot water. Mm -hmm. I mean, those are things that really any tenant should be able to um, rely on. Sure. And we had had this issue with NYCHA before. So Mm. during Hurricane Sandy, we... um, we knew actually firsthand that NYCHA residents didn't, not only didn't have heat and hot water, didn't have electricity or running water. Mm-hmm. After so, Hurricane Sandy. After for Hurricane a while. Sandy for right. quite a long time, months mm-hmm. right. after everyone else in the city had their utilities. Wow. So at that time, we wrote to NYCHA and said, You've breached the law. You need to provide people with abatements, which is money off the rent for the time that they didn't mm-hmm. have these basic. Mm-hmm. Um, Requirements, right? Because this is a legal issue. There's this a law. This is a legal that says, issue. There's a law. There's mm-hmm. a state law that says in every house, mm-hmm. whether it's public housing, private housing, big, small, if you're renting a unit, it's called the implied warranty of habitability. Mm-hmm. And what that means in layman's terms is they're they're warranting that the place is minimally habitable, <laughs> right? And right. heat and hot water is a big uh-huh. part of that. Heat yeah. and hot water in the winter is what's required to be mm-hmm. minimally habitable. Right. Um, so we, we, after Hurricane... I feel like that could be like a tagline for like NYCHA right now. NYCHA homes minimally habitable or maybe even not minimally habitable. Well, no heat and hot water means not habitable, right? So we, after Hurricane Sandy, we wrote to them. We told them they had to provide this to people and they did. They Mm -hmm. actually gave abatements to people after Hurricane Sandy. Mm -hmm. Um, so we actually thought they would do that here. We wrote to them again and we said, you know, if you haven't noticed, which would be sort of surprising since you've gotten a lot of bad press on it, sure. you have not been providing these minimal standards to your tenants, and as a result, they're entitled to money off the rent mm-hmm. because you've breached this law, this warranty of habitability. And 
we were surprised that they just refused. They refused to do it. They refused hmm. to engage with us. And, and they said they weren't going to do it. Was this happening during the winter when it was still freezing yes. out and people still didn't have heat? Yes. And they were saying, well, we don't have enough maintenance people to fix the boilers or they something They were really like that. saying, every penny that we give to you means money that we don't have. And right. we said, but you didn't, this is what people, people still have to pay their rent. Right. So you're required to provide people with money off the rent when you mm. don't do your part of the bargain, right? right? Like the tenant's part of the bargain is to pay the rent. Sure. And your part of the bargain is to deliver this basic mm. level of services. Well, it's interesting. It's a complicated thing, right? Because NYCHA is saying we're chronically underfunded. We need this money to be able to operate. We need to hire the requisite number of people to fix the boilers. If you're going to be taking that money away from us, how are we going to do our job? We're still trying to get money from the state. I understand um, Mayor de Blasio has said that the state hasn't given them um, maybe $200 million or something like that. Actually, much more than that. Maybe much more. Maybe almost a billion dollars. Oh, wow. Okay. So so they are chronically underfunded, and this is going to hamper them. That's what they would say. I mean, our view on this is... We're not talking about sort of the bigger Uber issues. You've got a lot of bigger Uber issues, sure. right? You've got to replace the roofs. You've got to do a lot of maintenance. Right, not to mention the but, lead issue, the mold right. issue. But this is heat and hot water at a time when I know it's nice out now, but we all remember what January was like. Mm-hmm. It was brutally cold. We mm-hmm. had that bomb cyclone. Right. We had weather that was as cold as, and I've lived in New York most of my mm-hmm. life, as cold as I ever remember it being. Mm-hmm. And if you... And they, remember, did nothing to mitigate this, right. right? So one of our plaintiffs in our lawsuit talked about how they parked a school bus outside her building and called it the warming bus. Oh, my God. So that you could sit in a school bus. Which are not with, really even that warm. No, not that got, warm, like, and they don't have any class. bathrooms. Mm. I mean, again, I said to them, even at the time, That's why crazy. aren't you at least getting, like, the community center's, you know, space heaters, mobile boilers, something mm-hmm. so that people can get warm. Right. Remember, these are places there was nowhere for people to get warm. Mm-hmm. They didn't have set up for people to places for people to get right. warm. They didn't arrange for other places for people to shower. Mm-hmm. Imagine having your kids having to go to school and they can't bathe in the morning. Right. Yeah. You can't get them, you know, you can't get the water warm. Mm-hmm. It's freezing cold in your house. Mm-hmm. Um, you're trying to heat your house. Which this, one of our plaintiffs mm-hmm. told us how she tried to heat. First, she tried to run space heaters, and it kept on blowing the fuses. Right. She tried to, um, you know, use her stove, and it kept on mm-hmm. going. The carbon monoxide detector kept on going off, so she knew it wasn't safe to do that. She and her three kids and her husband all had to sleep in the same bed so they wouldn't wow. freeze. I mean... These aren't, this is not reasonable. Uh-huh. It's not re- and what we learned from the city council hearings is that NYCHA just hadn't bothered filling the boiler positions. Mm-hmm. So they didn't have people, right. literally people on staff, to fix the boilers. Mm-hmm. But let's go back to, like, how, you know, their claim, like, well, we really, we just don't have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. This is a billion-dollar agency. You want to hire some people to get the boilers fixed, you can do that. And if you can't do that, then call the city of New York and get them to fix the boilers. There is just no justification for letting people go weeks without heat and hot water. Just, you cannot justify that. So would you say this is a management issue? I mean, so the the money is there, arguably. Why isn't this getting done? What is, what what, what was the problem? I mean, look, they, I agree. They have old boilers. They have, other, they have other problems. But the bottom line was they didn't deal with the fact that they knew they had about a third less boiler people than they should have had. 
and they didn't make sure they were hired, right. and they must have prioritized doing something else. And mm -hmm. you just can't prioritize people not having right. heat and hot water. Right. So we only have a little bit of time left. So if you can tell me cause kind of the schedule of or the timeline mm -hmm. of the case and what the remedies will be if you guys are successful and how, how this is going to proceed. So we recently filed. We don't have a judge yet. Um, but we're planning on trying to go before the judge shortly um, to make sure that the judge understands what the issues are. Um, we have asked for a class to be certified, which means that everyone in NYCHA mm -hmm. who didn't have heat and hot water would get the benefit of our case if we're successful. It's going to be a lot of people. It's a lot of people, but we right. don't want everyone to have to bring their own case. Right. Right? That's going to be upwards of 300,000 people potentially if it's 80% of. Yes, it could be a very wow. many people. Wow, wow. Um, and the goal would be to get a reasonable amount off people's rent for mm -hmm. the time that they were suffering. And that's what we think would be fair here. Okay, well, please come back as the case proceeds, mm -hmm. um, and we'd love to hear the updates. Thank Thanks. you for joining us. Yep, thank you so much. All right. That's the show. Thanks for joining us. Tomorrow we'll be back with plans for solar power in Puerto Rico, which just had an island-wide blackout. And Kingsborough Theater is back with us, this time with a musical performance. Hope you can join us. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It's also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Emily Bogosian, Naeem Van, Kritzi Roberts, Charmaine Lamb, and is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. Our show is recorded by Eric Hagasak, Antonio Rosario, Leslie Hayes, and Steve DeSev. And our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.